Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday, January the 20th, Liam Thatcher taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Liam looked at the doctrine of Scripture. Liam is an elder and teaching pastor at Christchurch London and a regular speaker and writer on theology topics. A word of apology before we begin. The sound quality isn't perfect in this recording, but what Liam has to say is great, and we thought that you'd really benefit from it anyway. Let's take a listen to the session. If the first session was about exegesis, what's God's word to them, then the second question is, well, what's God's word to us? Uh, if the first session looked at the idea of scripture being God's story, then the second question is, well, how does God's story shape our story? Because I think a lot of what I did in the last session, even just saying, summarise it in one sentence past tense, gives the impression that reading the Bible is about looking at what God said back then. Actually, if we're to really grow, we need to know what God is saying to us through the things he said back then. So we need to think how his story shapes and affects our story. And I want to just um, maybe turn to, uh, if you were on that page, it says session two, our story, turn to the next one. I really should have had page numbers. Yes, note to self. Page numbers in the future. Okay, um, how does God's story shape our story? Let me just give you a question, and um, I want you to take just, have, have, have people heard the phrase, the authority of scripture? Yeah. yeah? Okay. So, the authority of scripture has to do with somehow um, how this book, the Bible, has authority over the way we live our lives, right? It's something to do with that. But what exactly does it mean? I want you to take three minutes on your table to talk about that phrase, the authority of scripture. What do we mean by it? And how does this book have authority over our lives? What do we mean by the authority of scripture? Uh, anyone want to say anything you talked about? Or an idea, a phrase, definition? Yeah. And that is certainly... I mean, do others find that a helpful metaphor? Yeah. I just realised when I say, do others find that a helpful metaphor, it sounds like I'm about to say, because I think it's awful. But that's not what I'm going to say. Um, but I do, think, I do think that really gets us somewhere. It doesn't get us a whole way. Um, uh, so I'll come back to that in a second. Um, yes, sorry. Yeah. 
that, and that's really interesting, isn't it? So we can talk about some of the ways in which it functions in our life, which is the, the metaphor, isn't it? Of, um, uh, this is a manual, and if we do X, Y, or Z, we follow this, we will flourish, and if we don't, then we... So we can think about how it, how it works. But then what does it actually mean? It is quite a challenging question to get to, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. So, Jesus, when he was about to ascend on, he- on high, said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been leather-bound and is available from all good bookshops. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say that. What did he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. me. Not you in the form of a book. All been given to him. So all authority is with him. What other authority is there left over? None. Because all authority is his. So when we talk about the authority of scripture, we must mean the authority of God mediated here. And I think that may be sound pedantic, but I think it's really important, because loads of people think, well, why should I trust this book? Well, the only reason you should trust this book is, is if this is a genuine way of getting to the heart of God himself, the one who God breathed in, as it says in Timothy. And loads of people, I think, struggle with the idea of authority, because in our world, we don't really like the idea of being under authority. If we talk to people um, about authority in any sense, I mean, not even just this book, but just generally, people like to rebel against the idea of authority. All of us live our lives under authority. Every day, we live our lives under authority. Um, I have never been to Guatemala, um, but I believe it exists. Why do I believe it exists? Because I can look at an atlas, and I can see uh, from accounts of other people who've been to Guatemala that it is there in... Central America? It is in Central America. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be embarrassing. Yeah. West of France. I don't know. I, I, I can access through books. I can get to someone else's experience. And on the basis of that, I don't have to experience it itself. I take it on authority. I have never dissected a brain. I, I don't know everything uh, about how gravity works. But I trust scientists enough that I take it on authority and I don't throw myself off buildings. Because I, I can read books in which I access the authority of the author mediated through this text in a way that then shapes me. And I think that's possibly a good way of thinking about the authority of Scripture. What we're really getting at is the God-breathed authority of him, the one who has all authority. He has graciously chosen to give it to us in this form. Now, of course, I believe in Guatemala and um, in, in gravity, not because of this book. I mean... Jesus didn't send the disciples to Samaria and Judea and Guatemala. Like, it's not, that wasn't one of the tribes of Israel. It's not mentioned in here. So this is not the only authority in our lives. There are plenty of other authorities in our lives. And, but this one trumps the others. That's the Christian claim. When we talk about the authority of God, we say that God has primarily chosen to, uh, to reveal his authority to us through this word. Now, of course, as I look at creation, I look around at God's world as well as his word, I'm going to get glimpses of him and glimpses of truth. It doesn't all come through here, but this is the one that I measure it all by. And I think the way that we then engage with this, which is the story of God, and you might have noticed, you don't feature this. <laughs> I am not there. I'm not like how you turn to the final page, and then Liam walks here. Thank goodness for that. Like, I'm, I'm not in this book. This is the story of God, not the story of me. So how, therefore, does this shape my story? We need to think about, well, what kind of book is it? And I like your metaphor of it being like a, a manual for, um, for keeping a car running. I think that's really helpful to understand 
um, whole sort of swathes of this. In fact, I prefer that to this is just a set of law, which lots of people think, because the idea of maintaining a car, it's like this is for the good of the car and for the good of you. It has a positive angle rather than these are just things you need to obey unquestioningly. So I kind of like that as a metaphor, but I've never read a manual about how to keep a car going that has included poetic love songs. <laughs> um, so I don't quite think that gets to, maybe you have, I don't know, um, particularly romantic mechanics in the north of England, that's really weird. But, um, uh, I, so yeah, I, it gets me part of the way, but not the whole way. So then, and, and in fact, actually, I grew up thinking that the Bible was, like primarily, you, I, I think one of the first Bibles I had was a topically arranged Bible. So I would come home from school and feel, I don't know, lonely or something, and I'd look up loneliness, and it would take me to a particular passage, and I'd go, oh, great, that speaks to my loneliness. And that's how I thought you meant to interact with the Bible. And it helped, but it didn't help with everything. So then some people, you talk to them, and, and we got some of this actually in the first exercise, where you talk about what's the story of Scripture. You can talk about it being a love story. And I think in many ways, that gets us in way as well. That really explains some of the songs and psalms and some of the really beautiful poetic passages. But I don't know if you have ever written a love letter or received a love letter. Chances are they didn't include whole sections on how to deal with mildew or why you shouldn't eat shellfish um, or the exact dimensions for building a giant tent. Like that's, I mean, maybe they did. I don't know. I, I hear that's how Tim wanted his wife. It's like, a, oh, I love you, Vix. Your eyes remind me of mildew or something. It's like, oh, Tim. But, uh, that's an unusual approach to love letters. That's not how love letters tend to work. So I don't think that that metaphor gets us to understand the whole of scripture either. So here is a proposal for you of a metaphor for how to understand what scripture is and how it then shapes our story. I think the most helpful metaphor is to see this like a theatrical text, like a play text. And I might just say that because I study drama. That's why I, I love it. You'll back me up on this because I'm an ex-drama teacher. But like, I, I find this helpful to think of this as almost like a four-act play. And in fact, Tom Wright, who's a brilliant, um, brilliant theologian, he, he has developed this idea of thinking of scripture like a four-act play. Uh, I mean, Shakespeare himself said in As You Like It, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And I didn't deliver that in a very Shakespearean way. I'm not sure that's been a long time since my degree. So. But this idea of the world being a stage and all of us, these players, we come onto the stage for a moment and then we exit. So the question is, how does God's story then shape the way that we, when we step onto the play, live our lives as actors in the story? Tom Wright says, imagine this as being a four-act play. And I said earlier about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. He divides it slightly differently in this, um, but they're not contradictory. He talks about creation. Uh, God made the world. He made it perfect. I was recapping what we said earlier. He put us into it with purpose and dignity and a plan to uh, extend the borders of Eden and to fill the world with his blessing. Then came the fall. Everything went wrong. Blah, blah, blah. We'll go back over that. Then he talked about Israel. And Israel, um, I mean, most of the Old Testament and into the Gospels is dominated by Israel, isn't it? And so I think in the creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and even in our preaching, we could probably preach a year's worth of sermons and barely mention Israel, and yet a massive part of the Old Testament and the foundation for the New. I mean, it was to Israel that the covenants were given and the prophecies and the promises. So, so Tom Wright says, well, Israel, and I agree, uh, Israel is like the new Adam. Israel is uh, God choosing a new people for himself, through whom the blessing is going to come to the whole world. So Abraham is not just blessed for his own sake. He was blessed to be a blessing to the world. And in Genesis 12 and 15, in various places where he talks about the covenant, it seems to be this renewal of the mandate that was given to Abraham, uh, to Adam, rather, to fill the earth with God's blessings. So there you go, Acts 3. But then Acts 4 is Jesus. So Israel, 
Adam fell, Jesus comes on the scene. He takes a step onto the stage. And he does what Adam was incapable of doing and what Israel has been capable of doing. He fulfills it all in himself and in his teaching and in his miracles and in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension to heaven and in his pouring out of the Spirit. He said, I have come to fulfill, I am the telos, I am the goal, I am the purpose of all the law and the prophets. Right up to now, end of Act 4. Boom, wonderful. Applause. I'm still not in there. So, <laughs> so, so I think that's a helpful telling of Acts 1 to 4, but I don't feature in that. You don't feature in that. So, Tom Wright says, yes, but the Bible is actually four acts of a five-act play. The fifth act has not yet been written. And what we need to do is so immerse ourselves into the four acts of this book that we can then improvise the most compelling version of Act 5 we possibly can. I don't know if you've ever done any improvisation. Um, it works best when you really familiarise yourself, whether in drama or comedy, or you familiarise yourself with, with the scenes and what has gone before and what people are thinking and feeling and how they have acted and how that gives you an insight to how they would act so that you carry on the trajectory in a compelling way so it doesn't feel like a gear shift. And, and maybe you've had this experience of, um, of, of do, teaching improvisation classes. There's always someone who just thinks, yeah, I'm going to introduce a dinosaur. And you're like, you idiot. It's now become a different story. And if we treat scripture like this, Acts 1 to 4, and then we just go off in a different tangent, we end up telling a different story. That's not good use of the Bible, is it? What we need to do is so immerse ourselves in the stories, the characters, the themes, the things that matter to God, the values, the virtues, the trajectory of the story, that we say, well, we don't have an exact text for our Act 5, but on the basis of that, I know the kind of role he expects me to play if he had written this word for word. Do you see what I mean? As we immerse ourselves in the first four acts of Scripture, it gives us the ability to then enact the most compelling performance of Act 5 that we possibly can. And of course, and if that sounds a bit woolly to you, a bit wishy-washy, like, yeah, but that could lead to tons of different stories. Well, it could, yes, but we're in tons of different contexts. So I would expect that it would look different in different places. But the compelling thing about theatrical script is it's not all story. It is story, and it is narrative, but it's also stage direction. And just like if you are given a script and it says you, your character must walk to stage left and put something on the mantelpiece, and you decide to ignore the stage direction, that thing is not going to be on the mantelpiece when it's needed later in the story. So you don't have freedom as an actor to throw out the stage directions. You have to follow the explicit instructions. And the same is true with scripture. You get to it in this beauty and this poetry and stuff that just gives you loads of space to think, I could improvise this in a whole load of different ways. But you don't have to be able to throw out the stage directions, otherwise it becomes an entirely different play. So I like that as a metaphor because it blends together the sort of love letter aspect and the creativity aspect and the manual aspect into one. I think it does justice to most, if not all, of scripture. And it means that now my task is way more compelling than just do exactly what was written in this book thousands of years ago, word for word, exactly the same as it was told to you. It's like, what does this look like today? If Jesus walked the earth today, what would he do? On the basis of what I know about him in the past, what would he do today? And how can I do the same? It's an adventure to be caught up on. I find that way more compelling than just do what the book says. <laughs> do you agree? So I find that a really helpful way to think about scripture. And interestingly, in the um, in 2 Timothy, where it talks about all scriptures being God-breathed, 
it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I can teach myself. I can rebuke myself. <laughs> I can do that. I can correct. I can train in righteousness. But I don't think it's meant to be primarily individuals. It's about how I improvise Act 1. It's about how we do it together. And when Timothy is given those instructions, the expectation upon him is not, I don't think, just because he's a leader and he leads people, is that he instructs and corrects and helps others to live the most compelling version of Act 5 they can. This is something we're meant to do together in community. And I think if you just relegate the Bible to being something that I read so that I know how I act in isolation from all these other actors, we will miss all sorts of beauty that could come about in creative ways as our interactions sort of come together and spark off one another. I would say that scripture, I think, is meant to be best uh, improvised around in um, And so I know why we preach in particular ways, um, but if I simply see preaching as I tell you what to do, that's quite a restrictive version of preaching. Whereas I think probably what was more likely in Paul's mind was this idea that we read out this letter and then the Corinthians or whoever talk about it, discuss it, think, well, how do we do this? How do we live this in our particular context? It was meant to be more communal. Now, obviously, we don't want to throw our sermons out and say, anyone else got a thought on that? Like, that will be chaos. And I'm certainly not going to do that when I preach in your church tomorrow. But, but I think there is an element in which if we have to really improvise the most compelling act five we can, we'll do it best when we do it together. So my encouragement is, don't just think of these two years as being how do I learn things from me because of either discipline, but let it affect each of us, correct and train and spark off one another um, so that we can together agree with the compelling act of life in wherever it is we find ourselves. Does that make sense? Okay, I, that was longer than I intended. <laughs> you got me, I don't know, for a moment. So, <laughs> um, but let's, let's, let's go back to the question you had then. So how does God's story then shape our story? And in that question, there is a move from exegesis to hermeneutics. If exegesis was about God's word to them, hermeneutics is about God's word to us. Here's a little exercise. I want you to give me a show of hands. How many of you in your church practice the following? Do you teach that murder is wrong? Uh, if yes, please put your hands up. No, <laughs> quite a few of you are not putting your hands up. Is that, I, I trust that is because you just haven't got round to teaching it rather than the fact you don't believe it. Um, would you, maybe that's a better way to say it, would you believe and teach that murder is wrong? Yes, great, I'm still seeing a couple of hands not raised, which means I am not coming anywhere near you at the end of the meeting. There you go. Would you practice the following at your church? Would you wash one another's feet regularly? Hands up if you do that in your church. No, okay. Oh, well tomorrow when I preach. So um, how do you, uh, um, how do you, do you offer animal sacrifices in your services? No. <laughs> there was a moment of like, eh, do we confess this, do we not? <laughs> yeah. Do you celebrate communion together? Yes. Okay. Anyone not celebrate communion in the church ever? Okay. Do you practice circumcision? <laughs> All the men are like, <laughs> yeah, it does something. Just saying the word does something to you, doesn't it? Um, do you encourage people to lift hands in worship? Yeah. Yeah. Or do you maybe not encourage, uh, but permit it? Or expect it? Yeah. Okay, great. Do you forbid women to have elaborate hairstyles or wear jewellery and fine clothes? 
Unfortunately, no, it is a man. That's <laughs> just going to be clear, that was not me. And I'm going to stand over here and watch that one go off. So, um, uh, do you greet one another with a holy kiss? Yes? Did someone say yes? Yeah, okay. So some people do and some people don't. Holy kids. No, I greet them with really unholy kids. <laughs> I am caught between a rock and a hard place here. <laughs> okay, so what I want to illustrate is that you have, whether you've ever thought of it under the word hermeneutics, you have done something of hermeneutics because you've looked at scripture and you've taken things that we made clear what it meant to them, but you've made the decision, well, does that apply to us? Well, how does it apply to us? What does it look like for it to be um, done in our world? So we have done hermeneutics. The question is, do you have good reasons <laughs> for having done hermeneutics? And, uh, and if I were to ask you to justify some of those practices um, with relation to scripture, would you be able to? And that is the question of hermeneutics. So if you turn to the next page, there's a beautiful little picture. Um, in the reading list, uh, one of the books I recommended was a book called Grasping God's Word by Duval and Hayes. And um, in it, they have this, this picture of the interpretive journey. And uh, what I'm going to spell out in like three minutes is what they spell out in the entire book. Um, but I think this is a really helpful way of thinking about moving from exegesis to hermeneutics. And if you want a book, um, then I put two in the reading list. The first one, the, um, the How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth is uh, very practical and goes through the different genres and uh, really, really useful. Um, this one is a bit more like a workbook. So if you are the kind of person who you learn best through interactivity and, and, and exercises and being able to actually put them into practice and seeing scribbled things on pages, then that book may be for you. Um, basically, it spells out this interpretive journey that goes from exegesis to hermeneutics and it helps you to apply it to different genres. And it gives you examples, uh, gives you exercises you can try and also I think you so um, I would really recommend that. And basically, what they spell out is this journey, um, which begins, step one, the first task when we come to any passage of scripture is to grasp the text in their world. What does it mean to the original audience? That's what we talked about in the previous session. Then steps two to four are all about hermeneutics. So if you look at the picture, you've got this house, which is them in their world, and then you've got this river, and the reason there's a little, um, whatever that is, sponge finger in the middle of the river, um, is because... Actually, there is a, an extra step. If you're reading an Old Testament passage, you need to ask, well, how do I read this in the light of the New Testament? So there's a little island there. Uh, but then when you get to the other side, our world, you see there are multiple houses in multiple different parts, which represents the fact that actually it's not the case. We read scripture and we come up with one interpretation that leads to one action in our world. Because all of us are in different contexts. I mean, we may live in a similar part of the same country, um, but then broaden it out across the world. We come from different backgrounds classes, different um, experiences, different experiences of home, of family life, of different nations, that we have different contexts that we have come from and that we live in. And so my expectation is that when we apply scripture to our lives, it will look different for all of us, but there'll be a similarity between us. So let me just spell out super quickly what the steps are, and then we'll give it a go. So step one, uh, we said, step two, the next thing is to measure the width of the river to cross. So some passages, you read them and you're like, well, actually, that's, that's really similar to one of the words. There is no, like the river, I can just step by that and just do exactly the same. Um, but some of it, you just think, man, that is so far removed from my world that the river is, it just feels so vast. And actually, before you try and apply a text to your world, it's worth thinking, what kind of river am I faced with? Like, you wouldn't just think, I'm going to run and try and jump over this river. 
before you look at it and think, is it possible I might be able to jump over this river? But you have to take into account the breadth of the difference between their world and yours if you're to know how you can approach it. So step two is to measure the width, to notice the differences. And actually, if you... You don't have double-page notes, do you? So you can flip between... Can I have a look? Ah, great, you can flip to the next page. Great, you may want to flip between those two pages. What I've given you on the next page is a more detailed version of questions to ask yourself on this journey. Um, when you come to scripture, you need to measure the width of the river to cross. Ask what are the differences between our worlds. There may be differences to do with culture, language, uh, time, salvation, uh, covenant. Is it an old covenant passage or is it a new covenant passage? The place in redemptive history, God's story of creation, full redemptive, uh, redemption, restoration. Ask yourself how big is the gap? And then you can begin crossing over the principalizing bridge, which is a catchy title, huh? Um, what is the principle that is in this passage that enables me to cross from their world to my world? So I'm not primarily looking at application here. I'm looking at the principle behind the application. So God told this person to do this thing, and I can't assume that that thing is what I need to do here. I've got to ask, why did God ask me to do that particular thing? And then I can transfer the why, or I can use the why as a bridge into my world and think, what would it look like for me to fulfill that why, that principle, in my world? So let's take the, um, the Good Samaritan, for example. Um, why? Well, what did Jesus tell the lawyer to do? Let's focus on the what for a minute. What did he tell him to do? Go and do likewise, which is love your neighbour. Okay, so that's what he asked him to do. Why did he ask him to do it? Because he wasn't loving his neighbour. So yeah, that's, that's part, of the, um, part of the answer. But actually, it's, it's just woven into the fabric of how God is and how he expects us to live. It's there in the law. Um, and, and actually, what he did in the story was he specifically narrowed it down to a, um, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. But actually, the broader principle is we should love our neighbours. Priest, Samaritan, Levite, and Union, like anyone. That we should love our neighbours um, at great cost to ourselves. So that's the principle, isn't it? We should love our neighbours, um, whoever they are, at great cost to ourselves. Um, so that's the principle. So then, when I land it in my world, I don't know many Levites or Samaritans. Like, but I might think, well, who are the people who are the equivalents from that story? And I might think, well, it could be marginalised people. It could be... Um, but who are the people that I tend to think... I'm not going anywhere near them. I, they are not my neighbour. They're not people I have any duty or responsibility to. I might need to think, where, where are my prejudices? Where do I tend to think, you know, that's off limits. That person is off limits. I would never give my money or my time or my efforts to that person. And once I've identified who that person is, then I say, well, the principle is, I need to go and do likewise with that person. It may not be a Samaritan, but maybe my equivalent is a Samaritan. Does that make sense? So what you've done is you've genuinely got to the heart of what the passage meant. You then said, what's the difference? And we don't have the same sort of laws about Samaritans and Jews interacting. So that's, that's a vast difference. There is, but yes, there's a huge gap to cross. What's the principle? And therefore, how do I apply the principle in my very different scenario? Now, obviously, that's a ridiculously fast um, summary of a very big task. But what I want to stress is that exegesis has to start before hermeneutics. You have to start with what God's word meant to them before you get to what God's word meant to us. Good hermeneutics needs to be controlled by good exegesis 
and a text cannot mean to us what it never could have meant to them. Like that's the primary rule of eternal usage. A text cannot mean to us what it could never have meant to them. So we begin by understanding a text in its context, then we think about the gap, then we think about the principle that bridges that gap, and then we think about application in our world, recognising that since the may look different from someone living in the Middle East or uh, in 2,000 years' time or whatever. And that's okay. That's a faithful enactment of Act 5. Oh, that was a very fast whiz through a very thick book. Um, any questions on that? Shall we do it? Great. So, if you turn over to the page um, that has four boxes and the Good Samaritan on it. Good Samaritan underneath its washing feet. What I've got here is three particular passages and things that we have all said we don't do or we do to different degrees in our churches. My question is why don't you do them or uh, is it the case you just don't do them or you actually do an equivalent um, and if so, do you have the reason to do an equivalent? So what I'd like to do is break it into three, well, get us looking at three passages. How many people we have? So we've roughly got, roughly got sort of nine groups of people. Um, so what I'd like you to do, you three tables here, um, you don't have to work together, work in your tables, because otherwise it would just be an unmanageable group. Um, but each of your tables, I want you to focus on the first one, which is washing feet. Uh, you two, one, two, three, again, on your tables. Um, could you then do the one on the next page, which is the holy kiss? And then... Everyone else I've not included so far. If you could do uh, Peter's stuff about hairstyles, jewelry, and fine clothes. What I'd like you to do is read the passage that I have assigned for you, and then you don't have time to do the exegesis in real depth, but I think you can fairly quickly get to what was he saying there. Try and take it through the journey. Try and work out what it might look like to apply that in our world. And if you get stuck, do call me and ask me, and I will come and help. But otherwise, you have 10 minutes. So, um, let's start with the washing of feet, uh, which was this group. When I say let's start with the washing of feet, I mean let's specifically start with washing my feet. <laughs> no, um, uh, so, we won't look at the whole passage of John 13, but if you were to summarise it, what's God's word to its original context? What's God's word to them? Or, uh, like, rather than me asking you the questions, feel free just to talk me through the journey. We, we, we came, um, well, not came in, but it's the highest point of So, uh, so washing feet was quite a demeaning thing to do. It was a task of a servant. Um, uh, and so therefore, when Jesus asks his disciples to wash one another's feet, he's asking them to, them, to humble themselves for others. Um, but he is specifically asking them to wash feet, do we think? Yeah, I mean, you should also wash one another's feet. Yeah. 
in the context of what God is saying to the disciples, um, I think it's a precursor for God um, passing on um, Jesus' ministry to the disciples after yep. Jesus died. Great. So it's sort of saying, you're going to be given this massive authority yes. knowing the gospel, but you should carry that authority yeah. by serving the people yeah. that you tell them. Great, yeah, so I think that's brilliant. So Jesus is preparing for his death and he is planning to hand over to his disciples and so he's asking them to do it in the same pattern as I, I do it. Serving, humility, those sorts of things. Yeah. So um, I won't talk you through the four bits. Why don't, uh, tell me, do, do, do we apply it exactly the same way today? If not, why not? What are the differences and how might we apply it today? Anyone want to sort of talk me through it? So there is a difference between our context because we don't have servants. We wear shoes, our feet still stink, but they don't catch they don't catch like dust in the same sort of way. Um, and when you're doing your exegesis, you'll come across all sorts of things like um, at sitting at a mealtime, you wouldn't sit on chairs like this. You would lie with your feet pointing towards other people. So therefore, it was more important that you had clean feet for the good of like someone not wrenching because your feet are in their face when you're trying to eat. So, so all these sorts of things mean that this was a a practical thing that had cultural symbolism that's not quite the same now. And so you would expect that when you went to someone's house for dinner, you would have a servant that would come and clean your feet. But the bridge, the gap, the gap is quite different between their culture and ours. So, so, so what you've done there is say, here are the principles, which are going the extra mile, uh, which is a great principle. It's not strictly found in this text, but you know, it's right, nonetheless. Um, uh, and serving with humility and those sort of things. So, what might it look like for us if we're not going to actually wash one another's feet? What might it look like for us practically to put this into practice in our church today, this week, this month? Great, so the principle uh, is about serving one another. No job is beneath you, um, and therefore you should all sign up for the production team in your church. <laughs> is that what you wanted me to say, right? <laughs> um, but it's about, like, the principle is about serving one another. Um, yeah, and so we, so one of the ways we might want to do that is saying, well, serving teams, it's, about, it's not about me and what I want to do, it's about what benefits the body, and therefore I would do that. Yeah. And then I think there are, like I said, it's not just one, one application, there may be many applications. And so I might then want to think, well, this was not originally in the context of a church, but in the context of a house where people gather together. So how might I apply this in a midweek group where people come to my house to do Bible study? How can I show them hospitality? And, and, and so that will be another legitimate way of taking the same principles and applying it accordingly. Um,
Yeah, definitely. And one of the ways that I, I preached on this passage a while back, and one of the ways that people often preach it is Jesus gave up his power for others. I don't think he did. I think he showed us how power is truly meant to be used, because he, at the beginning of John, he like, asserts that he has all power. Like, I mean, John really goes to town in talking about how much power Jesus had and how much authority. So he didn't give up his power. He used his power in the right way. And what I love is the fact that you haven't had to really rack your brains and twist things to come up with a theological principle. Bang, right there in the text, isn't it? You know, serve one another. Do this for one another. No masters of other servants. Like, it's, it's literally there. So we're not playing fast and loose with scripture. We're taking what's genuinely there and applying it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's because actually God has all authority. Mm. How God relates to us. Mm. Yeah, it's an incredible revelation. Love yeah. And that yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, good. Great, there's tons we can say on that. Um, but let's move on to the... Um, the Holy Kisses, which was you guys over here, right? That you three tables. All right, talk us through um, what, and I think there are about six passages in the New Testament where we talked about the Holy Kiss. Um, what was God's word to them? Just, yeah, talk us through your discussions and how you came to a conclusion about it. So it's about actively making a choice for uh, to invest in community, and yeah, of course, once you done when you were doing the exegesis, you would you would want to ask, well, what did the kiss symbolise? Was it practiced anywhere else in the ancient world? How did people think about it? And you would come to conclusions about what the kiss actually meant. But yeah, it's something to do with community. I think there's a slightly better word than community, which is relationship. Yeah, yeah, or family, those sort of things as well. Um, uh, so it tells you the dynamic that's going on. It's not just that we gather together for a particular time on a particular day, but we are, our identity is family, isn't it? Um, um, so any, um, and, and actually, so the Holy Kiss uh, was a family symbol. So it's a way that you show love for one another is you would kiss someone who, to show your intimacy, show your closeness to them. And I don't think this is a hard and fast rule. Every time you see them, you must kiss them. Like if you go out of the walk room and come back, you want to do it again. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying something about the way in which we treat one another should be shaped more by a radical commitment to community that looks like family than it should business mates or anything like that. So, um, why, why don't we do it today? I mean, we're still, church is still family, right? Why don't we do it today? Not culturally appropriate. That's an interesting. Yes, uh, tell me why. Why is it not culturally appropriate? Because it's a political act. Well, now, 
Okay, great. So we have other ways of doing the same thing. So there's a principle that applies, and it lands in terms of us doing the same thing in a different way. What, so the principle is, presumably, treat one another like family, not like business executives, that sort of thing. Um, do you have a question? So, so there's then uh, a question of, do I try and redeem this? Do I try and bring back the holy kiss? Well, I'm not on a mission to do that. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons I don't think it, I, I would is partly because I don't think it means the same today, but also what it does mean could be, like, particularly in an age where right now so many abuse things coming out, I could so see how people could use these principles to be more touchy-feely than is appropriate. And... And so that ceases to communicate family, doesn't it? It communicates something else and actually turns a power dynamic in an unhealthy way. So, so hey, no worries at all. Um, so how might we apply it today? Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the holy kiss, um, sorry, the Greek, the sign of the peace, um, is actually slightly more formal, isn't it? Than, um, it more resembles, I mean, I'm not saying it's a wrong practice, it may be a culturally appropriate practice um, in certain circumstances, but it doesn't convey to me the same sense of family. Like when I greet my brother, um, I greet him with a holy like, hug or a Rugby tackle or something like that. <laughs> I'm not saying rugby tackle any random person that comes to the gym. But that's more of a family thing. Is it, It's a hug or um, or something like that. Maybe in a different way. Or chatting or... Yeah. Yeah, it's not the only one. You must do... Yeah. And that shows the danger of trying to leap to the application without thinking about the principle. Because if you think, oh, I will do that thing, but what you leave behind, or you, what you do is you make a formal declaration that we are brother and sister, what you leave behind is the principle that genuinely we're family and we're to greet each other in a way that makes it feel like this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so what... I think probably what's going on there is that the kiss was not holy in and of itself, because the kiss was the way that non-Christians would greet their family members. What the kiss was was a family thing. The way it becomes holy is by practicing it in the community of Christ, uh, where it's then devoted to him. So, so I don't expect that my application is any different, maybe, from how I would greet my normal family. The fact that it makes it holy is that it's now been done in a new context where the way I greet my brother, I apply to you, who is now my brother in Christ. So, um, there's loads more we can say about that, but let's go to the group at the back. Um, uh, hairstyles, jewellery, and fine clothes. Um, what is Peter saying in 2 Peter 3? 
what you were originally, how to reply today. Sorry, I uh, just realised I've given you entirely the wrong book of the Bible. So I'm looking yeah. at something about the last days. So it's, it's 1 Peter 3. So well done. Well done to you guys. Um, that was a test. No, that I'm um, fantastic. <laughs> Great, yes, sorry. Um, so the point, God's word to them was... Yeah. Great. So when you're doing exegesis, you would probably look into the context that Peter was writing to, and you would uh, need to look at what what are the hairstyles that are being depicted here, and um, what did they look like, and what do they represent. So I'm not so much just thinking like what was the fashion of the day, but like why why do they do that, and why do they get the idea that hairstyles or jewelry was appropriate, and was it? Uh, was it somehow related to symbolisms of power or wealth or even idol worship or whatever it happens to be. So in, in exegesis, you will be coming up with all these sorts of things. And then, so why don't we transfer it over today? What's, what's, the, what's the difference? I mean, I guess between their culture and ours, what's the width of the... Yeah, that, and that's brilliant, isn't it? Because, like, the beauty of inside. It sounds like such a modern, almost slightly trite sort of thing. Stare in the Bible. And, and again, what you haven't had to do is then twist scripture to come up with this sort of vague principle that works for our world. It's, it's literally in there. It's, it's talking about, um, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So he's literally saying in the passage it's what is inside that makes you beautiful don't substitute that for external things so how might we apply this today in our world Great. So, so men, <laughs> like it's, it's up to us as well as to think, what's this principle? Am I exhibiting my inner beauty or am I uh, focusing on externals so much because I think that's where I get my identity from? Really, I'm not doing that, but uh, <laughs> my choice of clothes. So what's interesting about this is the application in our world could actually be, conceivably be, exactly the same if someone is using externals like hair, styles, and jewellery as a way of making up for the fact that they 
don't care about their inner beauty, but they want people to think about them. So, so in some of these, it's completely different. Like, we wouldn't think that washing feet um, could conceivably be the right application for our world. But there, what's interesting is it could be the right thing. But if we apply it like a blanket rule, we miss the heart of it. And I don't think that the way that we do this is by standing up and looking out at the crowd and going, your hairstyle doesn't make the cuts, that jewellery, get it off. Like, I don't think we do that. I think what we do is we create a discipleship culture where people think, are thinking about their inner life and they're thinking about these principles. And we may want to teach into identity and where your identity comes from. And we may want to tackle some of the idols of our, um, our particular culture in a way that leads people to the conclusion that, oh yeah, the reason I do that is because I've got this view. I apply the principles by then changing my practice. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that was a that was a whirlwind tour of the Bible. Uh, so, like I say, and I've said it a few times, and I say it again, really because I honestly do believe this, this is my goal for the day. My goal for the day is really just to give you tools that today may feel a bit like I'm walking away with this tool and have no idea what to do with it. But as you go over these two years, you will start to apply them in different ways, and um, hopefully they'll come to life as you actually get into the books. Um, I see we have a question. In fact, we may have a few questions, but we are done for time. So what I'll do is I'll just pray, and then if you have questions, feel free to come and talk, and um, I'm so happy to chat with one of those. So let's pray. Um, Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that it is not primarily a list of rules designed to hem us in and restrict us, uh, but it is a, it is a love letter. It is a manual for the best flourishing life. It is a theatrical script. And there is implicit in it an invitation to take our place on the stage of this world that you've called us to. I want to pray that where I've said things today that have been helpful, you would help us to remember them. Anything I've said that has been unhelpful or has led us down unhelpful paths, I, I, I am sorry and I pray that it would just fall from our minds. And I want to pray that over these next two years, um, as we study and as we... Uh, get into the book and think about doctrines. I want to pray that the tools from today would be so useful in our lives and in our hearts. And I want to pray that scripture would really come to life for us. And to that extent, I ask you, Holy Spirit, would you never be absent from these meetings? Would these meetings never be just about going through pre-prepared material? Would you always be here speaking to us as you always have spoken? I pray even as we leave this place today, there will be things that we have said, maybe even in this final session, where you just think, oh, where do I get my value from? How do I greet one another? Do I really see people as family? Where's my equivalent of the, uh, the, the man in the Good Samaritan story? I pray that you would even use abstract or academic discussions we've had today to prick our hearts and make us more like you. We surrender ourselves to you. Holy Spirit, go with us, I pray, in all that we do, wherever we go from now, in Jesus' name.